Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right. Did I turn it back on? Okay. You can hear me? Okay. So tonight is um, not going to be a sermon, but a lesson. And the reason I make that distinction is most of the information we're doing today is not coming from the Bible. So that's why I'm hesitant to call it a sermon. And then also it's a little more <clears throat> of like a relaxed uh, style than than like giving out a sermon. <clears throat> but it is Rome in Judea. So when you read through the Bible chronologically, you have the Old Testament ending around the mid-400s B.C. with the prophecies of Malachi. So in your Bible, if you look, we even stuck Malachi right at the end of the Old Testament there to make it easy. And in this book, we see that the Jews have returned from captivity in Babylon. They've rebuilt the temple but they're dismayed that Israel has not been restored to its former power and glory. And the reason why they're kind of upset about this is um, Zechariah, 80 years earlier, gave the prophecy that rebuilding the temple would result in the prosperity and presence of God. So this is Zechariah 1, 16 and 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Well, at the time of Malachi, it's, it's been 50 years since they've rebuilt the temple, and Israel has not been restored. The northern kingdom... Look at this map here. The Northern Kingdom is ruled by the Samaritans. And the Southern Kingdom is now with the Edomites, which are the the offshoot of... um, Now I'm blanking. Joseph's brother. What? Yeah. And so um, so all around them, instead of, because this, this should have been, all this was what Jerusalem was with the first temple, right? But they've just got this one little area here. And so so, so they're, they're wondering, well, why is this? We, we rebuilt the temple. We're supposed to be large and in charge. And they're not. And, but, so Malachi gives a prophecy and God is telling his people that they have been giving him polluted offerings and that the, uh, the priests, if they don't stop what they're doing, um, are going to be cursed if they don't honor his name and that judgment will come to Israel for their profaning of God's covenant. So the reason why they weren't prospering is they were not upholding the covenant. And a prophecy then is given in Malachi about John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And a reminder is given to those 
that fear the Lord, that they'll be remembered by God and treasured by him. So giving reassurance to the faithful in, in Israel that, you know what, most people aren't doing what they're supposed to. You are. God won't forget you for that. And he treasures you that you've been faithful. Um, and then gives a warning that one day there will be a final judgment and evildoers will receive their due punishment. And then the Old Testament ends. That's the end of the book. And then Israel doesn't hear from the Holy Spirit for over 400 years. That was the end of it. It was, you need to repent and follow your covenant. And then nothing. They didn't, they didn't repent and they didn't hear anything. Um, then about uh, 7 or 6 B.C., um, God speaks through an angel to Zechariah about the birth of his son John the Baptist in Luke 1. And then if you read on in Luke 1, you see that there's a king over the Jews. We read further in Luke, and there's Romans. And then there's an assembly of priests that have control and power over people. But no explanation of, of how you get there. So why is Rome there in Israel and Judea? If the Jewish religious leaders wanted Jesus dead and they tried him in court, why was it the Romans that had to execute him? And so while these questions aren't needed for our salvation or even to accept the gospel, um, it does, knowing the answers to that does bring a greater understanding to the actions of those involved and how they transpired. So you can, just, you can read the gospel as is, but with the backstory, you sort of see how the different pieces have fit together. And it actually is kind of quite intricate how some of these things play out. So we're now going from mid-400s B.C. to 334 B.C. Um, Alexander III of Macedon, he begins his invasion of the Achaemenid Empire. So right here is where he's from. And then this is the Achaemenids. You can also call them Persians. All right, they're the ones that are currently over Israel, but letting Israel sort of have some self-autonomy by letting them have their temple and things like that. But the real people in charge is the Achaemenids. So Alexander the Great, he didn't actually directly attack Judea or any of the Jewish lands, but he was going after the coastal cities on the way to Egypt. So he goes through Turkey, well, what's now Turkey, and he goes right past Judea and all that because he wants to take Egypt. So um, he ends up, the big battle he does is in Tyre, which is uh, northwest of Jerusalem, and, um, and doesn't, doesn't leave until he has it defeated. Tyre was an island, and it just had a little uh, land bridge that when it was low tide, you could get a horse across, but it wasn't very uh, easy to. And he had people fill it in completely so that he could bring siege equipment and all things. So now if you see the city of Tyre, it's connected to the mainland. And that's because Alexander filled it in because he wanted to conquer those people. So because Tyre fell, most of the other people here along the coast just capitulated without a fight. And the Jews, they, they didn't care. They're not going to fight him. So they just let him say, okay, you're in charge. We're okay with that. So he goes to Egypt and in 331 founds Alexandria 
right here because he's Greek, and the Greeks like to sail, and they need a good seaport for trade, and Egyptians don't go on boats. They've got the Nile, but they don't go on the sea, and they don't trade with people. They don't care. They've got everything they need right there. So he founds Alexandria 331. That will come into play later. But then he ends up going, goes, marches past Judea, and then does all his other business, which doesn't pertain to the Bible or the Jews. And then he dies in 323. He didn't have an heir or a a secession plan in place. So his whole empire just breaks up into a civil war. And his generals become, they start fighting with each other of who's going to control what. So Ptolemy ends up taking Egypt and Judea, which is here in the blue. And um, the Seleucids end up taking all this here that's in yellow. And so for a while, Ptolemaic Egypt was in charge of of Judah. But then um, around 200 B.C., the Seleucids come down and take over the whole Judean area and the rest of the Levant. And again, the Jews weren't really involved in the fighting. It was just sort of, who am I paying my taxes to? If you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone kind of attitude that they had. But what it ended up bringing is um, Hellenization to the Jews in Jerusalem. Not ready for that yet. All right, so during this time, Greek philosophy, it becomes more prevalent. Uh, the high and ruling classes, they learn Greek. They even go so far as they, they uh, won't circumcise their sons so that they'll fit in easier into Greek culture um, because the Greeks like to do a lot of athletics in the nude. And so to have their sons fit in, they didn't do it, even though they're supposed to be set apart. Instead of being set apart from the Greeks, they were adopting a lot of the Greek customs. And they even started using Greek names. Um, even by people who were supposed to be the most set apart. You end up having a high priest named Jason, which is odd to think of, but his name was Jason, and he ended up being the high priest. And um, also during this period in Alexandria, you had the Septuagint created. So Alexandria, um, they had the 70 scholars there, translated the whole Hebrew text into Greek there. And so that's how you then end up with the King James Bible later on, because King James ended up using Septuagint. And all goes back to Alexander founding a city because the Egyptians don't like to sail. So it's kind of weird how history works out like that. Um, and so the, the Jews were becoming more and more Hellenized, but then at some point it became too much, and people started fighting back against it. And then you had uh, Antiochus IV, that he actually started persecuting the Jews. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to take over Egypt. So he goes down to try and take over Egypt, but um, Rome had an agreement with Egypt because Rome got a lot of their grain from Egypt. And so... um, they were waiting for him, and they said, all right, you got to talk to us. And he drives the 
circle in the sand around Antiochus and says, before you leave the circle, you need to tell me, are you going to turn around and go home? Or do, we need, do I need to go back to Rome and say that we're declaring war on you? So he didn't want to go to war with Rome. He knew he would lose. So he goes back. But he promised his soldiers all sorts of money and booty by taking over Egypt. Well, what do they do to get that money on their way back up? Because they marched all the way here. On their way back up, they go to Jerusalem, and they sack the temple and steal a bunch of money from the people living in Jerusalem. So that doesn't help. And then, he, in addition to stealing the money out of the temple, he then sets it up as a temple to Zeus. So even Hellenized Jews were like, that's too much, that's too far. So you end up with the Hasmonean Revolt. You may have heard it as the Maccabean Revolt. Um, older books will refer to this dynasty and this time period as the Maccabean. But that was just one of the people in it, and it wasn't a family name. It was just his nickname. So the, the newer books that have been written in English will use Hasmonean, and the ones that were translations into English will end up using Maccabean, but it's the same thing if you end up looking more in depth at this. So the revolt is from 167 to 160, and it starts off with uh, Mattathias, the Hasmonean, and he had many sons, and he told his sons before he died, you guys need to fight um, the Greeks, and we need to take our, our homeland back. And so the famous one is Judah Maccabee, some people translate his name as Judas Maccabee. Um, but Maccabee is just his nickname. It's, it's uh, based off the Hebrew word for hammer because he was very ferocious and aggressive in battle. So he got the nickname as the hammer. Um, so that's what Maccabee means. And so they were successful and were able to take a chunk of territory away from the Seleucids. And they end up retaking the temple. And then Judah Maccabee um, was from the line of high priests, that family. So he declares himself high priest and has the temple ritually cleaned, and he rededicates the temple. And that's in 164. Um, I'm going to read a little bit here. This is from uh, the first book of Maccabees. It's not in the Bible. Um, but I don't think it's like some of the other apocryphal texts that it's sort of just things people made up. Um, this is more of like a sort of a history and propaganda that was saved. Um, the reason why we don't have it in our Bible is that the Jews didn't put it as part of their Tanakh, but they did keep it as a text. They just didn't regard it as scripture. Um, and if you read it, I think that was the right decision on their part because it doesn't feel like the Bible. It feels more like uh, political writing that they're writing to their own people in neighboring countries of like, this is what happened. It feels more like you're reading a history book than inspired text. And there's also not really references to God and what God has done. It's all about what we have done. So I think it was the right call for them not to put it in their Bible. Uh, however, in uh, the mid-200s, the Catholic Church ended up making it part of the canon. It's part of what's called the Deuterocanon. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit here from that. This is uh, 1 Maccabees 4, 
Then Judah and his brothers said, Now that our enemies have been crushed, let us go up to purify the sanctuary and rededicate it. So the whole army assembled and went up to Mount Zion. They found the sanctuary desolate, their altar desecrated, the gates burned, weeds growing in the court as in a thicket, and the priest chambers demolished. Then they tore their garments and made great lamentations. They sprinkled their heads with ashes and prostrated themselves. And when the signal was given with trumpets, they cried out to heaven. And for the sake of time, I'm going to skip ahead. Um, But they talk about how they rebuild the temple and they uh, remake the uh, inner sanctuary the way it was according to uh, in Deuteronomy. And so then I'll go here. Uh, They had finished all the work. They rose early on the morning of the 25th day of the ninth month uh, in the year 148 and offered sacrifice according to the law on the new altar for burnt offerings that they had made. On the anniversary of the day on which the Gentiles had desecrated, on that very day it was rededicated with songs, harps, lyres, and cymbals. All the people prostrated themselves and adored and praised heaven who had given them success. For eight days they celebrated the dedication of the altar and joyfully offered burnt offerings and sacrifices of deliverance and praise. And then they talk about how they uh, then ornament the temple. And then Judah and his brothers and the entire assembly of Israel decree that every year for eight days from the 25th day of the month of Kislev, the days of the dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness on that anniversary, which is where we get Hanukkah. But if you read through Maccabees, there's no mention of the oil that was for one day that lasted for eight. That doesn't come until um, the Babylonian Talmud in the 5th century AD. So a lot of people think that that was just a story that they made up to justify having Hanukkah because all the other festivals that are celebrated are in the Tanakh. Hanukkah wasn't. And so people are going, well, we don't have a temple anymore. We're celebrating these things because it's in our Bible. Why are we celebrating this one? It's celebrating the rededication of a temple we don't have anymore. And so people speculate that the story was made up about the oil uh, lasting for eight days. Could something like that happen? Uh, it's, it's possible, but um, they don't mention it until hundreds and hundreds of years later, also conveniently when people are talking about not celebrating it anymore. So the Feast of the Dedication that we're going to read about in John 10 has nothing to do with like what modern-day Hanukkah is about with the oil and the lamps. So that's why I went so much with the temple rededication, because it will help you understand in John 10. This is John 10, verse 22 and 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So um, Jesus apparently did go to Jerusalem during the celebration there of the Feast of Dedication, of rededication. And so uh, why he probably did that was there was going to be a lot of people returning to Jerusalem, and he could talk with masses of crowds there. But that explains what the Feast of Dedication is, because it's mentioned in the New Testament. But if you look for it, you're not going to find it in the Old Testament. And it's because it happened here at the, the Maccabean 
revolt. All right, now we're going to move to finally the Jews meeting the Romans. So in 161, Judah Maccabee petitions Rome for an alliance. So Rome is what Thomas F. Madden, he's a great history professor, he refers to Rome as an empire of trust rather than an empire of conquest. So I know what you're thinking, oh, but didn't they go into Gaul and didn't they go over here and conquer that? Yes, but they also, when they would come and conquer those places, they didn't always set up their own government. They would just have someone else be their client there. Or they would make peace treaties with neighbors. Well, the problem is, if you make treaties with your neighbors to, for you to be safe, well, now you've made peace agreements with these neighbors, and these people are attacking them. So you just keep spreading out further and further and further. So eventually Rome is budding up with the Seleucids, and they don't like them. And the Jews don't like them, because they want to take all of what was the Jewish kingdom back. So um, they're thinking, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So in 1 Maccabee 8, they have it written down. I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, because it's quite lengthy, and it's a peace treaty, so it's not very exciting either. But uh, Judah Maccabee uh, chooses a few people to go up in his place to go talk to the Senate. And he talks, they talk to the Senate, and Rome agrees that, yeah, we'll be doing an agreement with you. So they inscribe on bronze tablets the peace treaty, and they keep one in Rome, and they send one to Jerusalem. And um, so what they've basically said is, if we're attacked by them, you need to come help us. And if uh, the Seleucids attack Israel then Rome, you've got to come help. And it doesn't matter if they come by land or by sea. That's basically the gist of the, the treaty there. So that's the first documented uh, contact between the Roman Empire and the Jewish people. Is there in 161. Then shortly after that, in 160, Judah Maccabee dies. One of his brothers takes over as leader of Judah. And... Um, they end up fighting the Seleucids, and then they, they finally capitulate, and they recognize the Hasmoneans of rulers of Judah and let them be semi-autonomous. That'd be, this is all different colors. You can't really see the scale, so I'm just going to do it. This is what it started out as. So they're finally recognized as semi-autonomous. Rome recognizes them as fully independent, sort of a poking the eye of the Seleucids there. Um, so, but they want to expand. So over the years, they expand their territory in all these different ways. And they end up taking over Edomia, which is just the Greek way of saying Edom. Um, I don't know why we decided to, to make the switch there, but in all the history stuff, it switches to Edomia. But it's, it's Edom right here. So they take over Edom and forcibly convert all the people living there. And they, they tell them, you have to be Jewish, and you have to follow all our laws and this and that. Um, so the Pharisees didn't like that. They didn't, the Pharisees didn't approve of all the, ex, the conquering expansion, and they didn't agree with forcibly converting people to be Jews. Um, and so a civil war ends up breaking out because... 
in 104, Aristobulus I, he says, well, in addition to high king and prince of Judea, I'm going to be king of Judea. Well, the problem with that is in the Old Testament, high priest and king are two separate families. So you can't be both. And so um, ends up, there ends up being a civil war. And so the, the Hasmoneans are fighting with each other and Jews are fighting with each other. Um, and it ends, and the Hasmoneans are still in power, and um, all the territory they have is still there. The people that didn't agree with the being high priest and king lost. So to solve that problem, Salome Alexandria becomes queen. And there's your problem to solve because she's a woman, so she can't be high priest. So she appoints her son to be high priest. So she's queen. He's high priest. Um, Then the problem, though, is that then she died. And her son went, I want to be king. And he wanted to do that, but the other brother um, said, no, I want to be king. So now we're in another civil war. And so um, Hyrcanus II, who his mom had appointed him high priest, he was favored by the Pharisees. And then his younger brother, Aristobulus II, was favored by the Sadducees. So you have the political groups uh, behind it as well, having the, the brother that they want. So I just think it's kind of funny that earlier the Pharisees didn't approve of someone being high priest and king, but now that it's the person they like, they're okay with him being high priest and king. Um, so there ends up being... Uh, the, the fight, and then the younger brother, Aristobulus II, he ends up ousting Hyrcanus and sort of kicks him out. He's, he's not killed, but he's kicked out. Well, during this time, Rome was fighting the third uh, Mithridatic War just north of Judea, and then Rome ends up winning, and the Seleucid Empire becomes part of Rome, and so both these brothers talk to Rome and say, hey, you need to support me. And the other brother told Rome, no, you need to support me. So now in addition to uh, them just fighting a war, they want to start a whole other war again with Rome involved. And they talk with Rome, and um, they end up siding with Hyrcanus, who was the one that got deposed by the younger brother. So Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus... Um, also known as Pompey the Great. He was part of the triumvirate. This is before they end up doing that triumvirate and the uh, Roman Civil War. So it's right before that. So Pompey goes in and he fights Aristobulus' forces and takes over Judea and takes over Jerusalem and takes over the temple and then kind of just bumbles around as a tourist and doesn't really realize what he's doing. And he goes into the Holy of Holies and then comes out and people told him what he did. And he then immediately uh, ordered that they purify the whole temple. And he like apologized and gave gifts because he doesn't want a war now on his hand. He didn't know what he was doing. He was just checking out the place that he just conquered and uh, didn't know that he wasn't supposed to go in there. So he ends up ordering that uh, it gets uh, purified again and... Uh, reinstates Hyrcanus as the high priest, 
and Judea becomes a protectorate of Rome. So then Rome has their civil war, and Julius Caesar wins, but then, as you know, he's assassinated, and so then there's a war between Octavian, Julius Caesar's uh, nephew, an adopted son, who will end up becoming emperor. He's now fighting with Cassius and Brutus, who murdered Julius Caesar. So that war is going on, and while that happens, Quintus Labinus uh, ends up going, you know what, why am I fighting all these people? He goes and joins the Parthians, who are just below where the Seleucids were, and joins them and takes over what was the Roman land, which includes Judea. So now instead of being a protectorate of Rome, it's now under Parthia. And we're going to take a quick break from this to another subject in there because we had just talked about Pompey, and that's the Decapolis. Because the Decapolis mentioned a few times in the Bible. Um, the city names that are in black are the cities of the Decapolis. The names we don't get from the Bible, um, the, the list of the cities comes from um, the history of the Jews, and um, that was written in about 90 A.D., but it's a pagan majority. These were lands that were founded during the Hellenistic period for Greek colonists to move into the area. And they didn't like that the Hasmoneans came over and were rulers. And they were very happy when Pompey came in. And they called him their liberator. And so they were so thankful that Pompey gave them self-governing status that they changed their calendar and made year one the year that he came through and defeated the Jews and uh, tell them that they could be self-independent states again. So we call it 63 BC. The Romans called it 691. The Jews called it year 3,697. The cities in the Decapolis said, no, it's year one. And based on archaeological evidence that people have found, they continued using that system all the way up into 687 A.D., because they, uh, they found a church that had inscriptions on it, and the year on there they said that that church was built was using that Pompeian calendar. So it's kind of odd that they hung on to that for so long. Um, but we, uh, we're going to look at Matthew and Mark there of the Decapolis. And so knowing that these didn't start as Jewish settlements helps with some of the understanding here. So this is Matthew four twenty three through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues that he is Jesus, uh, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Um, So what this passage is telling us is that 
Jesus was preaching to Jews and Gentiles, and that Gentiles were even seeking him out. And so it's showing, it's just a, another reference that people in the time of Matthew would have got by mentioning all these different places that, that Jesus came for everybody. He, he didn't come to form a new sect of Judaism. This was, this was good news for the whole world. And so that's why they specifically end up mentioning that you've got people from here and here and over where the map isn't coming to hear Jesus and to be healed by him. All right, and then we have in Mark 5, um, I'm going to cut to the chase here because I want to make sure I get through everything. But this is the story of um, the demon-possessed man that uh, people tried to bind him and he kept breaking through. So what's interesting here is that there's even a Roman influence on these demons because when Jesus asked him, what's your name? He says, Legion which is the, the largest unit of, of Roman army. So um, just interesting there that the, the Roman influence even goes to the spiritual realm as well. Um, so I'm going to go to the bottom here. So he heals him, and the man who was demon-possessed um, begs Jesus to go with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. So what's, what's interesting is earlier when Jesus is doing these miracles, he tells people, don't tell anyone. And in the next thing we're going to read in Mark 7, he's going to tell the person, don't tell anyone. Well, why does he tell this demon-possessed man Go tell everybody. Well, and the difference is this demon-possessed man is not a Jew. It's very clear that he's not because, one, they're in the Decapolis, and two, he's around a bunch of pigs. The, the Jews would never have done that. And the people living in the area were upset that the pigs were killed. So this very clearly saying that these are not Jews. So why is Jesus comfortable with non-Jews telling everybody but not Jews? And it's because he doesn't want the Jews to try and prop him up as a leader to take down Rome, which is what some of his own disciples were trying to get him to do. And he's saying, no, it's not my time. It's not my time. Don't tell anybody that I saved you. They'll know when it's time. But with the Gentiles, they had no issue with Rome. So if, G if they're telling about Jesus and this guy who's got all this ability and he can save people and all that, their first thought isn't going to be, oh, this is how we get rid of Rome. Let's rally behind him. So when we read Mark 7, we'll see that his response is different, even though it happens in the Decapolis. Because it wasn't just, you know, this wasn't a Jew-free zone. It was majority pagan. So here's Mark 7, um, 31 and 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre. Remember, that's where Alexander built the bridge, the land bridge. And he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis, so he's on the, sh the eastern shore. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephephatha, 
that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, the tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged, uh, charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Well, the reason why it mentions the word that I didn't pronounce correct is that's Aramaic. And you wouldn't have the pagans and the Greeks speaking Aramaic. The Jews are the people that were speaking Aramaic. So that's in there letting you know that he's healing a Jew because he's talking to him in Aramaic, not in Greek. Because at that time, Hebrew wasn't the common language that the Jews were using. They were doing Aramaic. Hebrew was used in the religious context, but they weren't using it as the everyday talk on the street. That's also like with uh, the when he's on the cross and he cries out, they write the whole sentence out in Aramaic because Jesus was a Jew at that time. That would have been his first language. All right, I'm going to have just enough time. So now we're going to go back to our chronology. I just wanted to side trip with the Decapolis because it's mentioned in the Bible and having the context behind it helps a little bit. All right, so the Hasmonean dynasty ends and then the Herodian period begins. So for years, Herod had been scheming behind the scenes to become king of Judea. And so he wasn't so much doing this in Judea, but in Rome. And he flattered Marcus Antonius, also known as Mark Antony, the famous one that was with Cleopatra later. Um, He flattered him and would give him gifts and all this and that and schmoozed him and did enough of it that when Mark Antony went back to the Senate, he said, hey, you know who we need to make king in Judea? We're gonna, we should make Herod king. So that's how Herod in the Bible was king. He basically semi-bribed his way into being king because he wasn't the same uh, lineage as the Hasmoneans. He was a completely different uh, family. And he wasn't even from a priestly family because he was Edomian. And his mother was Arab and his dad was an Edomian who was forcibly converted during that period we talked about earlier. So he really doesn't have a legitimate claim to be king, but because the Romans are in charge and they say he's king, he's going to be king. Um, he, and so he wasn't really liked by the people for all those reasons I just said there. Um, but he wanted Judea to be a major power, so he did a bunch of public work projects, such as doubling the size of the second temple complex, and he built a lot of fortresses, and he even founded cities for pagans to be living in Judea because he wanted it to be a, a power center of the world. And to do all this, he needed to tax people. And that, again, didn't make the Jews living there very happy. So they didn't like him for not being Jewish enough, for using their money to build pagan cities, to build fortresses, so on and so forth. Um, So he was very paranoid that he was going to lose power because he knew he wasn't legitimate. People didn't like him. So he ended up killing his second wife, um, Miriamne, because she was from the Hasmonean family, the people who were in charge before the Romans took over. So he kills her and her whole family so that no one from the Hasmoneans can, be, can say, hey, I'm supposed to be the rightful king. 
I'm in the line from Judah Maccabee. I need to be king. He kills them all, his wife included. And then he ends up killing other sons and daughters later on when they become too popular or if he thinks that they're scheming against him. So uh, he was pretty ruthless in that sense. And um, so that's why I think it's totally believable when the Bible says when he heard a king was, going, was born that he told them to kill all those boys because if he's going to kill his own wife because he wants to be king, do you think he cares about that little baby over there? You know, because some people will say, oh, the only place that story's found is in the Bible, so it can't be true. And so, well, the only place that we know that these are the cities of the Decapolis is in one source. We trust that, right? So just because there's only one source, and that source of the Bible doesn't mean it's not true. So if you read some of the textbooks they'll, about Herod, they'll say, oh, the slaughter of innocents didn't happen. I, I think it did, one, because it was in the Bible, and two, his previous actions show that he's that kind of bloodthirsty person who will do anything to stay in power. He ends up marrying uh, over ten wives, and this is not like King Henry VIII where it's like, all right, I'm killing you, getting a new one. This is, he had a wedding and married like five or six at a time. So he had multiple wives, which again, didn't make him popular with the Jews. So it got to the point where even the Pharisees and the Sadducees both didn't like him. Um, he then ends up dying of kidney failure, which then brings apart, uh, upon uh, Fournier's gangrene, which is very painful. And um, he tried to commit suicide, but people stopped him. And he was so afraid that when he died that no one was mourn his, mourn his death that he gave orders that they need to publicly kill a big group of distinguished men from the city so that while he's dead, there's going to be great displays of mourning and grief. Um, so that's the kind of man he was. But fortunately, his, his heir, Archelaus, and his sister um, ignored that he told them to do that because obviously if you're going to take power after him and you start your reign with killing these people just so people are sad, they're probably not going to like you. So they ignored that order of him, but it just shows that this is, this is the kind of man that he was. He didn't care about people. He, he only cared about himself. So then Herod Archelaus ends up being in charge of uh, Judea. His brother Philip II takes the land north of the Decapolis. This is not the Herod Philip that's mentioned in the Bible, though, the one that was, they did the wife swapping, and then John the Baptist said, you can't do that, and they killed him. Different Philip, same family, different. Um, so he had the area north of Decapolis, and then the other brother, Herod uh, Antipas, took Galilee and Perea. And this is the one that in Luke 23, when they, uh, at the, after the Sanhedrin trial, go to Herod, that's the person they're talking about. So I, that's a confusing thing for some people reading the Bible is, wait, the Bible said Herod died, and then now he's going to Herod's court? It's because it's, Herod Antiochus. Um, so he ended up getting Galilee and Perea. So before Archelaus could be confirmed by Caesar Augustus as king of Judea, um, he acted like he was the king, and he actually murdered 3,000 people who were starting to oppose him. His people on the ground were, trying to go, were starting to make a movement of, well, we don't want him to be king. So he killed them. 
And at the same time, he also then canceled Passover because it was happening at the same time, and he told everyone to go home. So that doesn't make you very popular with Jewish people if you kill a bunch of them and then also say you can't celebrate your important festival and go home. So Augustus finally confirms him as leader of Judea, but says, you can't call yourself king. You're going to be an ethnarch, which is basically like a leader of an ethnic group. So it doesn't quite have the same powers as a king. And eventually, he becomes so unpopular that Rome is afraid that there's going to be a rebellion, and they take him out, and they bring him over to France, and basically as far away from Jerusalem as you can get, and still be in Roman territory, and, uh, and that's the end of him. Um, and I'm going to read in Matthew here where it talks about, about him, because it solves some of the issue of, of now that we know that he murdered 3,000 people at the very beginning of his reign, this passage makes more sense. This is Matthew two nineteen through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he took and rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So that explains that whole passage of, because he was fine to go with Egypt. Okay, the angel said, Herod's dead, I'm going back. Then he hears that this guy's bloodthirsty as well, Angel also warns him, he goes up to Galilee. Um, and so Galilee, as we said earlier, was Herod Antipas's uh, territory. So that's why Pilate goes, oh, well, he's Galilean. Since it's the festival, we actually have Herod here and sends him to Herod. So that's how you end up with why Herod is in Jerusalem when he's supposed to be in charge of Galilee, it was because it was the festival, and that's he was down traveling for that. All right, so they banish him to France. So now they're under direct Roman rule. This is all of what the Romans end up calling the Judean area there. And they put in its place um, some autonomy for the Jews. They could still have their courts. They could still have the religious taxation. You read about the temple tax that they asked Jesus to pay. Uh, that temple tax, in case you're wondering, well, I didn't read about a temple tax in Leviticus. Where's this coming from? Judah Maccabee uh, instituted the temple tax. And so it stuck through there. Um, so they're still allowed to do taxation. They could still have their own courts. But the prefects, which what we would call governors, um, were the real power in charge. These uh, first three, you don't really need to know about. I just listed them there so that you could see that there is historical records of what went on there. Um, the fourth prefect of Judea, though, Valerius uh, Gratus, he's important because when he came into power, he started appointing high priests. And he went through four different priests until he found the one that he wanted, one that would be good and work with him and not 
butt heads with him, and that was Joseph ben Caiaphas. So in the New Testament, where you read about Caiaphas the high priest, he was not put there by the Jews. He was not born into the family line of being the high priest. He was high priest because Rome made him the high priest. So he had to play nice with Rome. Otherwise, like the other four people before him, after a year or so, you're gone because I want someone who's going to be uh, going to be a yes man to me and things like that. So again, Roman influence even in the highest levels of, of Jewish religion, which shouldn't have been there because it says that you need to be a Levite and all these certain things to be high priest, and now it's a political appointment. It's being done by pagans. And then Pontius Pilate after him, and we know all about him. And we'll side trip to the Sanhedrin. So I put question marks because no one really knows when the Sanhedrin started, but the first time it's mentioned in writing is 57 AD. So people are comfortable saying that well, at least by 57 it exists. So it could have started before then, but that's the earliest that we hear of it, is 57 AD, and it lasts until 425. So in the Bible, they just talk about the Sanhedrin, but there's multiple kinds. There's the Great Sanhedrin, which is what was in Jerusalem, had 71 members in it, and that's what this picture is, a representation of. And then the Lesser Sanhedrin had 23 and so each of the Jewish towns would have their own lesser Sanhedrin, and they would be the courts for the land. So like I said earlier, the, the Romans were perfectly happy with the Jews having their own uh, court system as long as it didn't butt up against them. So they had the Sanhedrins in each of the towns, and that's how uh, different matters would be solved and uh, disputed. So the Sanhedrin, the, the, the great Sanhedrin here, was this is really hard to see on the TV, but it was actually on the temple complex. And it was, um, so you had the court of Gentiles, the women's court, and then the men's court. It was a little room built into the men's court. Um, so the Sanhedrin could judge people, but it couldn't initiate arrests. So that's why when Jesus is praying in the garden, who comes and arrests him? Roman soldiers, because the Sanhedrin didn't have the power to arrest anybody. They can try people, but they can't say, you need to bring this guy to court. Sort of similar to how uh, our court system works, right? Um, the judges and the juries can, can hear cases, but they can't say, hey, uh, we think this guy's embezzling, go arrest him. It doesn't work that way. Theirs work that same way. So that's why in the Bible... Uh, you have the Romans picking him up, but then dropping him off with the Sanhedrin. And it's because their rules didn't allow them to arrest people. And also, why did the, the Sanhedrin then pass him on to Pilate? It's because in 30 AD, they lost their ability to have capital punishment. So they dumped him off on Pilate because the Romans were still allowed to do capital punishment. Because they really wanted Jesus dead. They didn't care what charge to get him with. They wanted him gone and out of the way. Rome said, you can't do capital punishment anymore. That's our jurisdiction. So that's why they gave him to Pilate. Um, and the great Sanhedrin, just another note there, 
it kind of also worked like a Supreme Court. So it wasn't just things happening around Jerusalem, but if other courts had issues or disagreements, they could then kick the case up to the great Sanhedrin. All right, last one, and we're going to end right on time. So then we end up with getting the end of Judea. And I've been saying Judea, not Israel, this whole time because Judea is what the Romans called it. And I wanted to show, like, how did we get to the situation that we did in the New Testament? So um, before his death, Jesus foretells of the destruction of Jerusalem. This is in Luke 21, 20 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those uh, days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, this prophecy comes true. You end up with your first revolt, where the Jews end up taking up arms against the Romans. Uh, it's, uh, that goes from 66 to 73. But in 70, you've got the siege of Jerusalem. And this was months and months long. And it was very important for Rome to win this. Uh, they didn't want to be shown as weak to the other areas that they had conquered. And then also, Judea was actually very rich and prof- uh, prosperous and the Romans got a lot of wealth extracted from Judea. So uh, Vespasian, who later becomes emperor, he's recalled from Britain, and he comes with his son Titus, who also later becomes emperor, and they're fighting in Jerusalem. Um, Nero dies, and Vespasian tells his son, you carry on the battle, I'm going to become emperor. So he deals with that, becomes emperor, um, so his son Titus is the one that actually takes Jerusalem. It's a much long, months-long siege, and they finally break through, and they level everything. They destroy the entire temple mound top. Um, this is a depiction the Romans made. You can, you can go to Rome today and see this. It's on the um, column of trade, not column, sorry, the, uh, the arch of... Um, of Titus, and there it is. They're taking the golden lampstand. So that's how we know exactly what the lampstand looked like from the Second Temple period, because um, the Romans carved it because they took it. Probably melted it down because no one's seen it since. But they completely took all, everything out of the temple. Um, every stone was was brought down because the Romans were really mad about this and everything, and destroyed all the houses, destroyed everything, and clean slate. And the only thing that survived of the temple was a retaining wall. So if you've heard of the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, that's, that is the retaining wall that held up the land that the temple was built on. So of the original city, that's the only thing that survived was one retaining wall. The Romans leveled everything, just like uh, Jesus' prophecy said. And um, so the Romans then, because 
they were really mad, built a temple to Jupiter where the, uh, the Jewish temple was in that same spot, basically telling the Jews, like, you're not going to come back. This is ours now. And they took a lot of slaves, and they brought them all over the empire. So just like Jesus said here, they will be led captive among all nations. They were brought into uh, Germany. So that's where you get the Ashkenazi Jews, because uh, that was the area that uh, in Germany that the Jews called Ashkenazi. That's where they got the name from. It's not actually a German name. Um, and that was just their term for like land that was way over there. It wasn't really certain that like particular spot in Germany had that name. But that vague area over there is what the Jews called it. So they ended up there. They ended up in Syria. They ended up in Egypt. So just like Jesus said, they're led captive all over the place. Trampled underfoot by the uh, Jerusalem, trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. The city's just leveled. Um, so Jesus' prophecy comes true. But there's still remnants of Jews living there. You end up with the uh, uh, the Barakova revolt, and that's sort of the end of the Jewish fight against the Romans. Um, Rome is so mad at this point that they end up going, you know what, we're not going to call you Judea anymore. We're going to call you what the Greeks called you, and you're going to be Palestine. And it stayed that way until uh, the 1940s. That whole area is called Palestine. Everyone called it Palestine. And because the Romans were so mad at the Jews for that, and they said, you know what, I know it was Judea because you guys are the Jews, and we just called it what you called it, but not anymore. We're going to show you that this isn't your land anymore. So that's, that was the end of Judea. It was in 135. So your extra fun fact uh, for today. So I talked about how Titus was left behind to uh, finish Jerusalem off while his dad became emperor. Well, Nero after the great fire, and built a big pleasure palace in the middle of the city. And that upset people, so his dad, Vespasian, cleared it all out and put the Colosseum there. And guess who built the Colosseum? Jewish slaves. So there you go. Um, that's your bonus fact, is the siege of Jerusalem leads to the funding and construction of the Roman Colosseum. So it's it's all kind of interconnected, the history, and it's weird the way some of the stuff ends up going and i left a lot of stuff out to be able to fit it in so if you're interested in that there's a lot of different history books you can look into but there's a lot of palace intrigue with the the hasmonean dynasty of people scheming for power and you know reading through it just shows that they they didn't they didn't take uh jerusalem for the right reasons they said that they were taking it back because they're jewish this is our land but they were really just wanting power. They weren't doing it for God. And that's why you see that it's not successful. And even with the high priesthood, how Jesus is saying that you guys are corrupt and you're not doing what you're supposed to, it's because they literally were corrupt and weren't doing what they were supposed to. And the evidence shows that people bribed their way into positions and did things because it was convenient and did things for their own power, like uh, with the Pharisees, how at first they were really against someone being king and high priest, but then when it benefited them, they were okay with it. So um, that's sort of why in the New Testament then Jesus is uh, not standoffish with them, but basically he rebukes them because he's saying, look what you've become. So that's that's what I've got for you about Rome and Judea. And uh, I wanted to, to share that just because for me, like, 
I was confused uh, when I was younger, going through part of the New Testament of, you know, like when there's Herod's court, I was really confused by that. I was like, but he died. How's there Herod again? And I was all confused on the timeline of how that worked. Um, and then also just confused with like, why is Rome there when it's Israel? And there's these courts and things. So for me, it was beneficial to learn that. It cleared up some confusion. I hope I didn't add more confusion to you guys of throwing in so much stuff. Um, but thank you for being patient with that. I know it's a, it gets a little dry. Um, Heather's heard it a couple times, so she's, she's ready for this uh, lecture to be done with. You guys have any questions before we close out and rescue the poor workers down there? Yeah. Yes. All right, who was the emperor after Nero? All right, good. We had one one person listening there. Well, thank you, guys. I'll, I'll close out in prayer. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for this evening that you've given us to be able to gather together and for us to be able to pray earlier. And, uh, we thank you that uh, that our Bible and our religion is is not something that's fanciful, but that it is rooted in reality and history, and that uh, the study of history and the archaeology uh, just further proves um, the truth that you've left for us. And we thank you that you've given us Jesus to be our Savior, and that um, if we repent and accept his name, that you save us, and that we are grafted in um, to your family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.